2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get
3: your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm a very tired Rose Scott. But coming up in just a moment, Emory University political science professor Andre Gillespie joins me to talk about what else the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff elections. Democrat Raphael Warnock is the projected winner in defeating incumbent Republican Senator Kelly Leffler.
2: What Georgia did last night is its own message in the midst of a moment in which so many of people are trying to divide our country. At a time we can least afford to be divided, we've got big problems and I'm deeply honored that the people of Georgia have placed their trust in someone who grew up in public housing, one of 12 children of number 11 the first college graduate in my family. And we
3: should note the Associated Press and other outlets have not called the race between John Ossoff and, of course, incumbent, incumbent Senator David Perdue. They say it's just too close to call as of right now. Also, we should note Warnock's opponent, Kelly Leffler has not conceded. Meanwhile, Lauren Bubba McDonald, a Republican, is leading against Democrat Daniel Blackman in the Georgia Public Service Commission race. Right now, McDonald has about 50.78% of the vote, with more than 99% of precincts reporting. We'll have more on all of this coming up in just a moment and throughout the hour, and of course, all day here on WABE. Now, on to our daily update on COVID-19. At the time of this broadcast, now we're looking at these hospitalizations first. 43,018 have been hospitalized, and of those... 7,535 considered ICU admissions because this is a continuing trend, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the state hospitalizations. And since the state began recording these numbers back in March, right now Georgia has reported 9,966 Georgians have died due to the virus. And in total, 597,208 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. As always, we get this information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, back to our ongoing coverage of Georgia's runoff elections. Just a few hours ago, Gabriel Sterling, voting implementation manager for the Georgia Secretary of State's office, he loves to give a price conference. Take a listen to this.
0: It was an impressive feat by whoever did it to get 100,000 people to show up on a January election who did not show up in a November election. My assumption is that those are probably Democrat voters, given the demographics we've seen of that. And that is a testament to hard work that was done while Republicans were busy uh, attacking the governor and my boss. Uh, The Democrats were out there knocking on doors and getting people to turn out to vote.
3: As my great-grandfather would say, hmm. Election officials continue to count outstanding ballots in some counties, including DeKalb, Henry, and Cobb. Well, join me now to give us the latest is Wabe Voting and Elections Reporter, Emil Moffett. Emil, I feel like I just talked to you just a few hours ago.
0: It was just a few hours ago. Good to good to talk to you again, Rose.
3: Same here, buddy. And listening to Gabe Sterling there, he went a little further than just giving election returns analysis. Uh, Emil, what's up with that?
0: That was uh, one of the more uh, intriguing comments of his press conference from this morning, uh, really putting the blame squarely on the distraction caused by uh, President Trump, uh, complaining still about the results of the November election, sowing a lot of distrust and just really, uh, in in the words of Brian Kemp, a distraction for Republicans. Uh, and And meanwhile, Democrats really working to turn out the vote. And as he mentioned that statistic, At least 120,000 people that didn't uh, participate in the election in November went out to vote in the January 5th runoff. And as he said, a lot of it skewed uh, to the Democratic side.
3: And something I'll talk with in just a moment with with Professor Andre Gillespie is that even in that Northwest area where President Trump came down, uh, not a great turnout there.
0: Yeah, the combination of uh, Democrats taking care of business uh, in the areas that they needed to, uh, plus uh, a, a little bit of depressed turnout in those Trump strongholds, uh, really combined uh, to uh, to put the Democrats uh, Warnock officially and Ossoff uh, likely over the top.
3: Well, let's get to some the numbers here. Or in, uh, actually, we should just talk about what, how many precincts precincts right right now? Emil have reported. Is it likely that we'll have all the counties in uh, sometime today?
0: Yeah, you mentioned it off the top there, about 99%. Um, as far as total votes, uh, there are about uh, 55,000 or so absentee ballots uh, that have to be counted uh, at this point. Uh, the majority are in metro Atlanta counties. They are those absentee ballots. So the combination of the absentee ballots plus metro Atlanta counties, and that's why you saw the AP call the race for Warnock, and that's why Osof is is trending uh, toward a victory as well.
3: And Emil just a couple more questions cuz and we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And then after this process, now depending on the margin, is there another rule or or anything that allows for Leffler or Purdue to challenge or, or ask for a recount?
0: This is something that came out of the press conference early this morning as well from Gabriel Sterling. And that is, he does not believe that either of the Senate races will be within that half a percent uh, that allows each candidate, the losing candidate, to automatically request a recount. Now, there is a a provision where if there are irregularities uh, that a candidate can request a recount, but that would be up to the discretion of the Secretary of State's office. So the automatic threshold, it's not likely, as Gabe Sterling said, that either of these races will fit into that category.
3: We also understand that there was a little bit of a Twitter back and forth between President Donald Trump and I believe Gabe Sterling. President Trump tweeted that there was 50,000 votes that were found. To our knowledge, we know that that is not true. Uh, But what did, did Gabriel Sterling address that?
0: He did. Uh, He was talking about basically these are absentee ballots and a lot of these are the ones that are still outstanding. These are absentee ballots that came in either on Monday or on Tuesday before seven o'clock, which is the law. That's the way it's supposed to be. If you get it into the absentee ballot drop box by seven o'clock on election night, it counts by law. And to say these ballots just showed up out of nowhere is just hogwash. It's it's not in accordance with the law. So Gabriel Sterling is just pointing out those facts and um, they got into a back and forth a bit on Twitter and uh, Gabriel Sterling appears to, to just... Uh, be growing a little tired of a mm-hmm. president consistently attacking uh, his integrity and the integrity uh, of the Secretary of State's office.
3: And using a word hogwash there, Emil. <laughs> <laughs> WABE voting and elections reporter, Emil Moffat. Emil, thank you for taking the time as always and your continuing coverage. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Emil.
0: Good to talk to you, Rose.
3: This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. A closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. I want to get you some breaking news here from the AP. Vice President Mike Pence defies President Trump, says he can't claim, quote, unilateral, as my phone went out, unilateral authority to reject electoral votes that will make Joe Biden president. So some breaking news there. And speaking of breaking news, some history from candidate to now Senator Senator-elect Raphael Warnock defeats Kelly Leffler. Warnock will be, will be Georgia's first black U.S. senator.
2: And so, Georgia, I am honored by the faith that you have shown in me. And I promise you this tonight. I am going to the Senate to work for all of Georgia.
3: And although numbers are still coming in, they do tell a story. As we begin our post-runoff election analysis, I'm joined now by Andre Gillespie Emory University, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute. Welcome. Good to see you again. Professor Gillespie, can you hear me?
1: I'm sorry. Hi, how
3: are you? Hey, how are you? Long night, huh? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, forgot I hadn't hadn't unmuted yet. Uh, I
3: don't know about you, but I got a 2.30 a.m. BBC call. (laughs) It was kind of interesting. Uh, Listen, before we talk about what happened or is happening right now, let's go back a little bit because in conversations and now we're hearing that what happened last night or is happening really has been this trend that... People like Stacey Abrams has said, look, this is something we have to do years ago. Do you give credit to organizations like Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams, what they were able to do in mobilizing and getting voters registered, which is leading up to what will become, it appears now, Georgia having two Democratic senators?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, I think the the biggest uh, sort of takeaway is that this didn't happen in 2020. It didn't even start to happen in 2018. Um, there have been groups like Black Voters Matter, like the New Georgia Project, like the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda that have been working for years in the field, identifying new voters, getting them registered, and then getting them educated and mobilized so that they actually turn out to vote and become regular voters. And it took years for them to get to a place where Georgia was competitive, where they were losing races by smaller margins. But that helped to set up the victories that we saw in this election cycle. And although we still need more data points to, you know, just figure out sort of how purple Georgia is or how swingy it is, it looks like if this trajectory continues, that it's going to move into Georgia continuing to be competitive with really close margins and Democratic and Republican victories for the foreseeable future.
3: Let's stick with that for a moment, Professor, because when you say you still need more data points, uh, break that down for our listeners. What information do you need? do we need just some more some more election cycles like the next big statewide races here
1: Um, Yes, so, you know, you always want more data points. And so, like, I can't make any conjectures on one election because that's just one data point, but two data points gets you a line. And then the more points you have sort of, you know, the more accurate the line is that you draw. So, you know, we can look backward and see those narrowing um, sort of uh, margins Mm -hmm. uh, where Democrats were gaining on the Republicans. And so it wasn't surprising that they surpassed them in this election. But we're also going to look ahead to 2022 and to 2024 uh, to see, uh, you know, if the pattern still holds, and that's going to give us more information to help us see whether or not 2020 was part of a trend or whether it, it becomes an outlier in the long run.
3: Let's back up then a little bit as we talk about these two Senate runoff races here. Did, obviously the the runoff, having a runoff obviously was in favor for the Democrats, but also was this, should have sent, a, if it didn't, sent an alarm To the Republican Party says, you all may want to have a different strategy in between now after 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 November 3rd and then the runoff. Because we saw the same familiar campaign messaging, both Purdue and Leffler hitting hard with the radical and the socialism and all that. You saw Raphael uh, Warnock be more of, hey, they're going to attack me. I'm going to tell you right now what's coming. You know, you're going to hear all this. And it wasn't a surprise, I guess, to anyone. Because he told you right off the bat, this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to go this route. Was that a misstep, you think, for the Leffler campaign?
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's going to be a lot of Wednesday morning quarterbacking going on in the Republican camps. And I think that there are really important lessons to be learned. Um, You know, there may be some Republicans, including President Trump, who are in a state of denial about Georgia's more uh, competitive new normal. Um, But that has to be accepted. That's what the numbers suggest, is that the state has become very competitive and that Republicans can't assume that they can win races by comfortable margins. And that shouldn't be a license to try to change the rules to make it easier for them to be able to maintain their lead. So uh, Republicans are going to have to figure out how to compete in the new normal. The other thing, especially for Senator Perdue, who you know served a full term in the Senate, mm-hmm. um, you know while he did better than President Trump in the general election, his numbers tracked pretty closely, proportionally speaking, to President Trump. Um, and that doesn't suggest that he had done enough to cultivate a personal vote, something that would kind of transcend whatever people thought about Donald Trump. And he has Senate colleagues who did. People mm. like Susan Collins, people like Ben Sass and Tom Cotton. So even people who were staunch allies of President Trump, who still were able to significantly overperform President Trump, re- proportionally speaking, in their states. That Senator Perdue didn't do that. I think he's going to have to reflect on uh, his general aloofness, his unwillingness to engage with constituents and the media. And, you know, uh, future Republican leaders need to make sure that they are engaging with all aspects of the constituency across the state. And I would say the same to Democrats, too.
3: So do you think that Leffler and Purdue rely too much on the, the the loyalty to Trump and that messaging? Is that what you're saying also? Um,
1: well, it's, it's understandable that Senator Loeffler did because she'd only been in office for a year mm-hmm. um, and she hadn't been elected in her own right. So I think she felt constrained to do that. And especially after Doug Collins challenged her and they basically had to run the race of kind of who was most loyal to Trump. Mm-hmm. It makes sense in her case, even though I think ultimately it hurt her. And I think for David uh, Perdue, um, I think he was relying on sort of what the old sort of normal was in Georgia where Republicans had really comfortable advantages. And I'm not sure that he realized that he had to hustle as much as he needed to hustle against a very, very hungry Democratic Party that was going to pull out every stop to make sure that they got their people to turn out to vote.
3: You heard the clip. You were on the line. I hope you heard the clip with Gabriel Sterling, you know, in a sense saying, look, Republicans, while you all were attacking me and and my boss, the Democrats were doing the job because they got 100,000. It appears to be 100,000 voters to come out who didn't vote in the general election. Is that a fair assessment?
1: I think it's a fair assessment, and I would actually expand it a little bit more. Uh, uh, President Trump, because he wanted the optics of an election night win, encouraged his voters to vote on Election Day, and then he cast doubts on this uh, on the integrity of vote by mail, um, with no evidence to back it up. Uh, that was a strategic blunder. Uh, Democrats were able to get people to vote early, and they were able to bank votes. In the runoff election, more than two-thirds of voters cast their ballots during the early voting period, Mm -hmm. and so that puts a lot of pressure on Election Day in order to make up the difference. Um, No campaign wants to be in that type of deficit position, and I think it's ill-advised for them to uh, consider that strategy going forward. I also think it's a problem to then try to eliminate absentee uh, absentee voting in an attempt to try to take that advantage away from Democrats
3: too. Well, and if folks want some numbers to back up what you're saying right now, I'm looking at the Georgia Secretary of State's website and I'm looking at between Leffler and Warnock absentee by mail votes. Now, so far with what the Secretary of State's office is reporting, for Leffler, 329,980. For Warnock, this is absentee by mail, 600 thousand eighty nine nine seventeen so you're right they're already behind but get this in terms of election day votes you know it, it appears that that leffler you know she you look at it Oh, leffler had eight hundred twenty nine thousand plus election day votes Raphael only four hundred eighty four thousand but it's the absentee by mail votes that make up that difference and give the advantage to warnock people should know that those those, yeah, those I mean, numbers just, don't lie yeah. Yeah,
1: the numbers don't lie. And, you know, when two thirds of the electorates already voted, it's really hard to try to make up any potential deficits there with only one third of the electorate in play.
3: What numbers have you been looking at so far, Professor?
1: Well, there are lots of numbers. I mean, one, you know, there's a slight difference in terms of the vote shares for the Democratic and Republican candidates. Overall, I mean, this looks like there was very little split ticket voting and folks, you know, were pretty much in lockstep with one another. But, you know, uh, you know, I do have some questions about the margins, like what's the difference between um, Warnock actually being able to have a little bit more of a commanding lead than mm-hmm. than John Ossoff does. Um, it's gonna take a little bit of digging to try to explain it. It's not uh, immediately apparent. Uh, Warnock just seems to get a few more votes in every county uh, than, than John Ossoff typically does. Um, when we're looking at the exit polls, uh, the exit polls aren't granular enough to see really big differences in terms of demographics, so they're pulling from the same places. So uh, you, I'll look at uh, additional data to try to make that determination um, in, in the latter days. I'm also going to be paying attention to, um, you know, how the losers eventually concede whoever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've already heard that it's very unlikely that they're going to be automatic recounts. So are Senators Perdue and Leffler going to try to go the litigation route like President Trump? Um, and, you know, when will they decide, you know, if they go that strategy and they're not successful that, you know, finally it's, it's over and it's time for them to concede? And, and will they actually formally concede or will they just say, well, OK, we're done, we're not going to be senators anymore?
3: Georgia now becomes this template or this case study for other states that may be teetering on where they're going to go flip to one party or the other. And if you if those states are saying, well, Professor Gillespie, what what data points should I be looking at as I research Georgia to make sure, you know, depending on what party you're involved in, that that doesn't happen to us? What would you tell them?
1: Well, I think every state can learn some of the lessons of turnout. Now, in this runoff, we had the benefit of having pretty much unlimited resources to be able to touch every voter multiple times, um, it seems, in order to get them to turn out to vote. Um, And I think that there was a really important lesson here for the Democrats in um, taking up canvassing again, because that's the best way to increase voter turnout. Um, So any state can use that. Um, I think the questions of, you know, which states are uh, much more likely to become competitive, you know, really does fall on what the political conditions are in the state. Um, and I'm not making a demographics or destiny argument, but demographics do matter in the state. So part of the reason why Raphael Warnock could win in Georgia, but Jamie Harrison couldn't in South Carolina is that the demographics and, and, and partisanship looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Georgia's got more white Democrats in South Carolina or Alabama does. Um, and it has a larger Latino and Asian American population which can then augment the strength of the African-American population. So Georgia's in a much better position to put a democratic multiracial coalition together. So in that respect, we might actually, in terms of competitiveness, be following in the route of North Carolina, where it's just gonna go back and forth for a little bit. Um, and then if there's any state that's going to be following us, I suspect that we're going to have a lot of Texans, Democratic Texans in particular, looking at Georgia, because that's also a state with a large minority population uh, that would be more likely to break uh, uh, Democratic, though not in the same ways, because you know uh, Latino populations look different partisan-wise, mm-hmm. depending on which state we're looking at.
3: Political strategists, because I talked to some already, They've, they're telling me, look, particularly here in the state of Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp and all these others that want to be reelected in these statewide races. Your campaigning starts now, in a sense, technically, if you're going to figure out what you need to do if you want to be reelected in your statewide position. And also for the Georgia legislature, you know, when that comes up again, you know, we, we have a, we have some new lawmakers coming in. But down the road there, is it too early for statewide uh, elected officials to start thinking about their strategy? You know, we're about what, eight, 14 months away, maybe? Um
1: They're already thinking about that strategy. And I think particularly for Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, since uh, Donald Trump has already, you know, indicated that he's going to support primary challenges for them. So they are no doubt thinking about this. They've been thinking about it for a long period of time. And the truth is, Senator-elect Warnock has to think about it, too, because Mm -hmm. he's up for re-election in 2022.
3: Wow. Andre Gillespie, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. So much information. I have to ask you this, though, too. When you're looking at all these numbers, it doesn't just make your brain get a little fuzzy. You enjoy digging into this data, doesn't you? You, you enjoy it, do. don't you?
1: <laughs> I need more data. But yeah, there are times when it gets fuzzy and you got to walk away. But today is not that day.
3: <laughs> well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Another quick question for you uh, before we go to break here. For a state like Georgia as well, in terms of battleground and swing states how are you defining Georgia right now
1: um Georgia's competitive Georgia's not a blue state Georgia is definitely competitive and so uh we're going to get a lot more attention than we have been accustomed to receiving
3: that's a good thing (laughs) for each if you like
1: politics it is a great thing
3: (laughs) Andre Gillespie political science professor from Emory University thank you so much for taking the time as always I really appreciate it thank you and folks, coming up after this program today, immediately at 2 p.m., guess what? You get a special, special dose of political breakfast. Yes, with Dennis O'Hare. And I call him Ren and Stimpy, but with uh Brian and Theron, it should be very entertaining and inter- interesting. Yes, it's a special edition of Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare. And then coming up next, some more political insight. We'll get analysis from our Closer Look, I guess we could call them Closer Look political analysts. We don't pay them because they don't need to be paid, but we'll speak with Fred Hicks and Corey Ruth. Stay tuned. There's more Closer Look after this.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
3: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. History.
2: And so, Georgia, I am honored by the faith that you have shown in me. And I promise you this tonight. I am going to the Senate to work for all of Georgia.
3: From candidate to now senator. Senator-elect Raphael Warnock defeated Kelly Leffler. He is Georgia's first black U.S. senator. We should know at the time of this conversation, the race between Republican Senator David Perdue and Democrat John Ossoff has not officially been called. But let's get right to it as we continue our coverage of what happened last night or what didn't happen last night. Joining me now to provide their insight and analysis, Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks and Corey Ruth, CEO of Emergence Global. Fred, Corey, welcome back. Thanks
2: for having
4: me. Let's,
3: Let's talk about the race that has been officially called by AP and some other media outlets. And Fred, I'll start with you. The last time I had both of you on and you talked about that, if there was of the two races, one that you felt a little bit more comfortable about the Democrats winning, it was this one between Warnock and Leffler
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think the numbers are, are bearing it out. What was really interesting to me, um, following social media last night, people were really sort of perplexed by it. But the reality is that, um, at least Black voters, I believe, and certainly uh, voters of color, really re- really coalesced around Warnock. And while the support of Ossoff, it just wasn't the same. And you saw it across the state, whether you're talking about Southwest Georgia, Metro Atlanta, or even North Georgia, I would make no mistake about it. The two of them were complementary candidates, and having each of them in the in the race helped elevate each of them. So they they worked really well together.
3: Corey, I'll get before we dig into those numbers that Fred was talking about. Your analysis of what happened last night in the Leffler and Warnock race.
4: Look, I think Warnock ran an amazing campaign, and I think the uh, Democrats have uh, of late sort of um, abandoned the outdated model of selecting candidates um, which relied on pedigree and electoral experience and class and they adopted a model that aligns better for the media age find a talented person with a good story that's good looking and eloquent and has some swag and let's run them and uh and i think warnock um coupled with his commercial strategy i mean just Really great campaign. And I think Kelly really struggled to show personality. I think um, her campaigns really didn't try to define herself. She just ran negative campaign ads against uh, Warnock. And I think in the end, the positive image that he portrayed uh, won the won day.
3: Corey, let me ask you this through your lens do you think the Leffler campaign, there was too much of the focus of just calling Raphael Warnock a radical? socialists, just kept hammering that with most of the ads. Was that too much?
4: She did not run any or very many positive ads defining who she was. And I think Warnock did a good job with that, the puppies and and all that kind of stuff. And and, uh, he really defined himself as a human being with compassion. And then, um, you know, so when the attacks came, I mean, he was running ads telling you, and I'm about to be attacked. and uh, But you were already drawn into those soft ads that he ran. But I also think Kelly ran dangerously close to Donald Trump. Um, and, and, and that may um, be reflected in the, the, the vote difference between her and David Perdue.
3: Well, Fred, let's talk about what Corey just said in terms of Kelly Leffler's inability to come across as being personable and down to earth. He said, you know, it was hard for her personality to come out. Now, look, we all love puppies, right? You can't go wrong with puppies.
2: You can't go wrong with puppies. I love puppies. I think I said that before. No,
3: you didn't. You know, you (laughs) said I'm not a dog person and I got all kinds of emails.
2: (laughs) Eagles Eagles are America's favorite and my favorite. (laughs) But but seriously, to your your point there, Rose, you know, it was um, I'm going to disagree with Corey a little bit here. And uh, number one. I think that um, to say that Warnock was a great commercial candidate, I think uh, ignores the work that he's done in the community for years around expungements, around feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, and the work he's how he's leveraged the pulpit of Ebenezer to really impact the community and so he actually has a record of service and was that record of service prior to running for office or being an office that really allowed him to be insulated uh, from it and including when the attacks came across uh, came that was anti-semitic the fact that he spends time at the temple and that Rabbi Berg spends time at Ebenezer there are there many folks in <laughs> his community who were able to stand up and say wait a minute while that might work in other cases we know Raphael Warnock we know what he's doing what the work he's done Um, So that's number one. And then with respect to Senator Loeffler, um, I would say this. Candidates have a choice. It's your name that's on the ballot I'm working with it. And I was like, look, we have to decide what kind of campaign we're going to run. And so she chose to run that kind of a campaign. She chose to to not show any personality. If there's anyone there, she chose to alienate her very own WNBA players. With it, to the point that they were out there wearing Warnock shirts, and LeBron James was tweeting last night that he wants to put together an ownership group to buy to buy the dream from Kelly Leffler. Those are her decisions it was her decision to, on sunday morning to say she was not going to support um the insurgents uh effort today to to not acknowledge joe biden and then to run on monday flip-flop and say that she was going to do that so again those were I, i'm not one that let her off the hook and say she couldn't do that every candidate has a choice about the kind of campaign they are going to run and they have the ability to say yes or no to whatever
3: happens well Corey, do you want to respond to what fred said
4: no but i i agree with him i think um you know the the point I'm making about the commercial candidates is is, is not to take anything away from uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock um, uh, and the work that he's done, but just to say um, it's important that you have candidates that play well in a media age, and and the Democrats are doing a good job at that, dating all the way back to Barack Obama. You could have someone who did just as much work as Raphael Warnock if they don't have the ability to align well in the media age they're not going to be able to win the way he did so i don't want to take anything away from him i know he he has a life work he's done a really good job but you know of the 2.1 million people who voted for him or so um they know less about that and more about how well he played on camera and so to me i'm saying that he did the democrats um not just this election but whether it's Stacey abrams whether it's Um, Biden choosing Kamala Harris over all the other uh, women that he could have selected, whether it's choosing Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton in 2008, the Democrats have decided that we're in a media age and we need candidates that play well to the media. And the Republicans are still looking through, um, you know, um, candidates that have uh, a political pedigree and, uh, and, and they're limited in finding people who can relate across media channels.
3: Let's move beyond the campaign ads and to campaigning and also the support with, you know, those who are out, probably wearing masks, we hope, and still canvassing and knocking on doors and obviously, you know, still trying to, and even within a pandemic, still trying to meet voters out in public. I think we saw a little bit more of that with so many grassroots organizations working for the Democrats as opposed to what we maybe didn't see as much with the Republicans. Fred, how much did that play into Warnock's victory last night?
2: I think it played a tremendous role in it. About two weeks or so ago, there was a conscious decision amongst Democratic groups uh, to shift money away from TV. And there was some hand-wringing in D.C. about uh, with donors saying, oh, I think you should continue to compete on TV. But the shift was from TV to the ground. And let me be clear about something else here with that. This is the first time we've seen this kind of a ground tax statewide in Georgia. And this is the kind of first time we've seen communities of color so not just black voters, but uh Asian people, people from the Asian American community, people from the uh from the Hispanic Latinx community join together and say that, hey, we are going to engage our communities where our community exists, our communities exist, and work on turning out that vote. Um, and that was just absolutely tremendous. And it happened again statewide normally. Uh, When you think about the Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn race in 2014 and that Mm -hmm. sort of old model that Corey referenced, Mm -hmm. it was uh, run someone who's Republican light and run them uh, and try to run up the numbers in Metro Atlanta, Savannah, Macon, and Columbus. And those are still important, but you have Hancock County, you have Albany, you have Edenton, you have places in North Georgia, and uh, there were groups that just fanned out across the state and said, we are going to knock millions of doors, we're going to crash Beauty salons and barbershops across the state, not just in Atlanta, and that's been one. That's one of the other mistakes that become Democrats have continued to make um, over the years. Is all right when someone comes in, they're going to send them over to Pascoals. They're going to send them somewhere in Southwest Atlanta. I love Southwest Atlanta; that's great. But there are ninety nine point eight percent of the voters, black voters in Georgia, live outside of Southwest Atlanta. And so to go after black voters, go after Asian voters, go after after Latinx voters, Hispanic voters, this is just tremendous to see this. And that made the difference. Corey, what do you think? I saw um, Ossoff with
4: a uh, campaign advertisement with Asian characters, um, right? The language that was in, in uh, an Asian language. Yeah. And I saw um, Warnock with a Hispanic ad, right? So to me, um, the ground game that the Democrats have compiled is, is unmasked. Now, getting out, turning out Republican voters... Is different than turning out Democrat voters so the ground game is going to be robust for Democrats I think Republicans are going to have to think about what type of ground game will work for Republicans because we do need to get um, you know uh, those threes and fours those folks that don't vote often um, those votes those folks that voted for Donald Trump but didn't vote for Brian Kemp type folks how to get them out on a regular basis the way the democrats have have started to do and i think it's going to be a different game but they have to figure that out really quickly
2: i was just going to say to that point it starts with talking to people who are less frequent voters and that was the other big difference here um there was a concerted effort on the democratic part on the part of democrats this time to target people who registered after November 3rd, number one, number two, to go after low propensity voters. So instead of sending stuff to the super voters, going out to, to the less likely voters. And then number three, down the stretch, there was a concerted effort to chase absentee ballots. So, hey, if you requested absentee ballot and you haven't returned it, here is what you do. And so your nonpartisan groups like the NAACP or the Coalition for People's Agenda or ACLU, they were able to stay within their nonprofit parameters, but target minority voters and say, here is how you vote. Here is what you do. Here is this thing called voter protection. If you're encountering any issues at the line, so the the level of after my own heart, I would say you know the, the kind of targeting um, uh, was important. And then also we had unprecedented resources. Rose, you know we said this, um, gosh, about a month or so ago, and I had no idea that that. That interview that, you did, that that you did would go all over the place, Marketplace, Forbes, and everything. Remember, we initially talked about this being a potentially a billion-dollar election, mm-hmm. and we are by all accounts at at least nine hundred million. So you you hit a spot on with your show um, about a month ago. So kudos to you with that. But having that kind of money mm-hmm. actually made that possible so you can want to knock on doors, you, you can target, but you got to have the resources. Nine hundred million dollars and counting for this election.
3: Here's some other numbers I want to throw out at you. If someone were to tell you on election day, Kelly Leffler received 829,629 votes, Raphael Warnock, 484,775. But here's some other numbers absentee by mail. Kelly Leffler, 326,912. Absentee by mail votes for Raphael Warnock. Which one of you, it's like Jeopardy! Which one of you want to take a shot at what that number is without cheating?
2: <laughs> no, I don't know.
3: <laughs> Fred? Here, I'll give you the number. 685,687 so far is what we know, according to the Secretary of State's office. That in itself may be a telling oh. story as well. Absentee by mail votes.
4: Yeah, okay. going into yesterday, um we understood that the Dems were already up 200,000 votes and that the GOP needed out to be around a million and that they needed to win, Kelly and David, 65 percent of that million vote. And what you just said about Kelly sounds like she was around 50 percent instead of that 65 percent that she needed to be at in order to pull this election through.
3: Yeah, you're spot on. Your arithmetic is pretty good there, Corey. Well, let's look at this in terms of strategy moving forward, gentlemen. And Corey, I'll, I'll stick with you. In doing some coverage last night, and I had Jake Evans on, whom I know you, you know well. And Jake has been making a case, because he is considered a young Republican in a sense, the under 40, that it is time for the Republican Party not just to focus on changing their messaging, but also be more welcoming. And be more supportive. And he mentioned minority voters. And I asked him to take that further. And this is about, are you going to focus so more on issues? Are you going to change your stance on certain issues? Or are you just going to be more welcoming? Because to be more welcoming, you can say, oh, welcome. But that's not what's going to get it. You have to perhaps change your stance on certain issues. Is this something you think the Republican Party? Because then one argues, well, if the Republican Party is changing their stance on some issues, Then they're not as conservative as they used to be, and that therein lies a problem for some folks. What needs to happen for your
4: party? You know, I have a, I have a big problem with Republicans who feel like, in order to attract African Americans, they need to change their uh, positions. Um, I don't think Republicans have a problem um, getting black votes. Uh, Friend, to tell you, there's plenty of Republican governors. Uh, pretty uh, of plenty of Republican sheriffs and, and Republican mayors and Republican local officials who get the black vote all the time. Um, Jeff Bush used to win the black vote in Florida um, because he had been an incumbent governor. Um, when you show that you are for people, they, they vote for you. Now the branding at the national level and the campaign um, I think, we have some work to do, and, and it's not going to be done when you, you're you not running people who have an image that reflect the people you're trying to attract. So Republicans are going to have to run African-Americans, Asian-Americans, gay Americans, women, um, if they want to attract those folks and, and just take that issue off the table. And that's something that they're not doing. Now, you know, who, who's next in line? to run for US Senate. We got a Senate race, Warnox race in two years from now. One year.
2: One year. One more yeah. year. Yeah.
4: And who who's who's a line? Jack Kingston and Doug Collins? This is what we got? So to me, if you're not pulling on a Vernon Jones or an Ashley Bell, or if you're not pulling on women like Janelle King or or, or my wife, uh, Dr. Ruth, then then I'm not really interested in in seeing what what you're going to put together, because I don't think you're going to be able to change your message. I don't think you're going to be able to deflect the accusations of, of racism and xenophobia. And so I think we're going to be in the same position that we were, that we saw ourselves in tonight, uh, last night. And so Republicans have to adjust how we pick candidates. And so it's going to be an unorthodox type candidate for them. You're going to be picking someone who um, it, it's not about race, but picking someone who who didn't work for some some elected official who has not been elected already, who does not have a, a statewide platform. But guess what? This is all describing John Dosso, and yet well, the Democrats raised twenty three million dollars for him to run for Congress, and when he lost, they ran him for Senate.
2: So, so Corey, I I, I hear you, but I think. Number one, you got to talk about which policies you're talking about. You cannot actively court racism and 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 campaign with members of the Klan and run a black person and think that that's okay. You can't do that. And and so the party's gonna number one, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to make an overstatement of racism. But we were polling up in in Athens going into the first debate, and at that point, uh, going into the first debate, Trump was up 15, 16 points in the polling that we were doing. After that first debate, where he where he shouted out the Proud Boys and refused to repudiate racism, he fell by 15 points. It turned just like that, and that was the moment I knew that Joe Biden would win Georgia after that first debate. Never recovered. Secondly, the answer to electoral losses cannot be making voting more difficult, and that's what's going to really happen in the legislative session next year, next week. Those numbers that Rose that you just gave, that just says to me, this is why the Republican Secretary of State is deciding to to go after absentee voting. Rather than making it more difficult under the guise of validating and fraud, while at the same time saying there was no fraud and this is the most secure election ever, you can't have it both ways. They were on TV and they've been saying this is the most secure election ever, but we've gotta change voting policies. Why? If it was the most secure voting election ever in Georgia's history, there's no reason to do that. So as long well- as- are trying to exclude people from the part from the process and from and from participating, you're going to struggle. It doesn't matter if it's Bernie and Janelle or your wonderful, lovely wife. Well, I, I do it. it
4: you like my plug there, by the way. I do. I do, I do. <laughs> well, well, Corey, how do you
2: respond
3: to that? We've heard that before.
4: I'll separate the issues on the on the first issue of the racism, um, the Proud Boys, the KKK person campaigning. I agree with you on that, Fred. I think if you get a real brother or a real sister. That's running on the right. Um, that's not going to happen, and so that's why it's so important. Well, who's a real brother or a real sister?
3: Let me ask you, this, Corey. Yeah.
4: And my apologies for
3: interrupting you. Who mm-hmm. would you consider quote a real brother or a real sister? Let's just break this down. We having this conversation. Sure, sure. Let's have it.
4: I think in the I think when you look at minorities in either party they reflect the broader population in those parties. And and what I mean is you have sort of Tea Party blacks in the Republican Party and you have Trump Trump blacks in the Republican Party, and then you have sort of mainstream type uh, Republicans, uh, black Republicans. And what I'm saying is we already have a model of successful black Republicans called Colin Powell and Condi Rice. And But what you see, typically when you see African Americans who are um, engaged in Republican politics is that they're more aligned with um, sort of um, the, the Herman Keynes or, or, or the Allen West of the, of the party. And so when I say real brother, real sister, I'm talking about people like Colin Powell and Condi Rice who are not only popular with the Republican base, but also are popular amongst their own people and, and folks who are not afraid um, to say, you know, here's an issue of impact to African-Americans broadly. And so I will, if necessary, separate with my party on this matter.
3: Two questions for each one of you. First of all, are you one of those people that are officially going to say now Georgia's a blue state? That's your first question. Then follow up with what how does all this play out for the next big statewide races? Fred?
2: So, yes, I was one of those who, did not, who said Georgia was not blue before, but Georgia is blue. You have the president and two, both both senators, Georgia's blue. Um, the next election starts today. So the reverend's reelection um, is today. And next year's the, sorry, three, two, one. So, yes, Georgia is blue. Definitively in my mind with that. Um, it's not a heavy shade of blue, it's a light blue.
3: Oh now come be- on. <laughs>
2: Let me get into shades. <laughs> it's more <all> of <laughs> a turquoise, you know, kind of sea green. It's
3: a sky blue. blue.
2: <laughs>
3: not a ro- <laughs> not a royal blue, it's a sky <laughs> blue. It's a pastel blue.
0: Right.
2: It's a Tiffany box blue. No, but George, I would say George George is definitely blue and that's flipped. Um and then with with respect to the second question. Uh, Reverend Warnock's re-election starts today um, because he does not want to be a Doug Jones who won in a special election and then lost in the next one. And then also, honestly, for Brad Raffensperger and for Brian Kemp, their re-election started today. Uh, Both thought before that they would just coast into a November election but now they have have a primary election 14, 16 months from now that's going to feature probably Marjorie Greene and or Doug Collins, and they're going to be fighting for their their lives just to get to November. So... Mm -hmm. For all, the, all your listeners, you will have a reprieve from the text messages, phone calls, and ads, and all of that. But for all the donors out there, your pocket's going to be really thin because everyone has to start raising again today.
3: Mm-hmm. Corey, I'll end with you first of all. Is is Georgia officially blue? And what does this say now for the those statewide races that'll be coming up?
4: Yeah, I I think Georgia is definitely baby blue to, to piggyback off uh, Fred here, and and um, but you know. I'm still not convinced, um, or still, I think the jury's still out to see whether this is a trend, or whether uh, this is a Trump phenomenon, right? And and then I say this: the second thing um, is um, the Secretary of State role and Warnock's race. I'm I want to bring up a name uh, that you guys may laugh at, but Vernon Jones. If he um, can get out of a Republican primary, uh, which means he would need to have um, support from some of these national Republicans or Fox news Republicans, or even the president, uh, uh, Trump himself. Um, I think, I think he'll give fits, uh, to a Warnock, uh, and I think he could win Secretary of State over Brad Ratensburger if uh if he were to run statewide.
2: And we well, should... realize that Vernon Jones has lost to Cab County twice. Once the sitting CEO I understand. Of the Senate as a Democrat, and then when he I understand. For the election But he would be running county.
4: as a he will be running as a Republican and he would be taking all of the the um, votes that Kelly and David got today, and you're gonna tell me he can't pull off twenty five percent of blacks?
2: What I'm telling you is that that Joe not Biden, in DeKalb County. Dekalb County. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't think it's going to happen <laughs> in DeKalb <laughs> County, Corey. Look, I have to tell the truth as a journalist. It's not personal. It's so if, no,
4: not in DeKalb. So if Vernon is listening. His campaign has already started today. On Close look,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I gonna text about it. But Vernon, you lost DeKalb twice, and Stacey and whoever else will get 95, 98 percent of the vote in DeKalb County. Republicans hate <laughs> Vernon Jones in DeKalb County. And, folks, in case you're wondering why, because
3: Vernon Jones tweeted today that he is officially leaving the Democratic Party and he is a Republican. Uh, it's not a surprise to anybody, but that's why we're having this conversation. So.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting. It'll be entertaining. I'll say that. All right. Maybe he'll crowd surf his way through the Republican primary. Okay. Sorry, Vernon. Hey, buddy. Don't don't text me for real. Don't text me.
3: Atlanta based (laughs) political strategist Fred Hicks. I'm going to end this conversation. And Corey Ruth, CEO of Emergence Global. Thank you both for coming on and being honest and providing your insight. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Take care. Thanks.